an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I am to speak on a Catholic vision of the artist, just as they did. And I'm reminded of an old joke about Elizabeth Taylor's seventh husband. It is said he knew what was expected of him. He just didn't know how to make it interesting. <laughs> but seriously, what a wonderful tradition you have established here at Franciscan University with this lecture series. It's edifying to be with a group of faithful Catholic artists, hungry for knowledge, thirsting to perfect the practice of their art, to harmonize it with the faith which God revealed to us and to put it at his service. A group such as this is not easy to come by in New York City or New Haven. Certainly I wouldn't have received such a warm welcome at Yale had I announced to the students that I was about to speak about a Catholic vision of the artist. I'm going to try to soak this healthy ambiance in as much as possible so I've got a good afterglow to coast on when I get back to Babylon. It's got to last me a good long while. I kid about New York City. There are a lot of good people there. Yale, on the other hand, but seriously, while there are a lot of good people, it's nice to diss Yale, isn't it? <laughs> but seriously, while there are a lot of good people in New York City, it is unfortunately the center of some artistic activity which is a challenge, shall we say, to the Catholic, and even more so to the Catholic artist. I think you all know many of the examples I have in mind, so I'll spare you the pain of recalling them. Cherish this nurturing, hothouse environment you now find yourselves in, it is giving you a chance to build your intellectual and spiritual strength. Soon enough, you will be transplanted to more hostile terrain, and you will need every ounce of that strength to practice your art nobly. This is one of the reasons I helped found the Catholic Artist Society in New York City, along with my friend, actor Kevin Collins. It is a kind of spiritual and intellectual safe harbor, a place to retreat, Slide one. Especially for those who did not have the advantage of a formation in a nurturing environment. We sponsor evenings of recollection, lectures, various liturgies, including solemn vespers, a requiem mass last November, and our annual votive mass, of course. This was our first, this was our inaugural mass uh, in 2011 at the Church of Our Savior. We'll soon begin a series of lectures on an aesthetics that is grounded in theology with the help of uh, the good Dominican fathers down in Washington, D.C. And there is a social aspect with which people enjoy tremendously. We have social hours after each of our events. We count artists of all sorts among our membership, actors, musicians, sculptors, painters, architects, writers. We are also blessed to have Father George Rutler, who uh, is uh, preached at the Mass that you see uh, depicted above, and Father Joseph Kutursky, four advisors to the board. And our honorary patron is Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, Prefect of the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura in Rome, the Church's Supreme Court. Perhaps he'll be our next Pope. Wouldn't it be nice to have the Pope as an honorary patron? <laughs> then the membership applications will really start rolling in. I would invite all of you to look us up on the web, and if you happen to be in New York City, when one of our events is on, you are, of course, warmly invited to attend. You will also find on our website the Statement of Aims. I won't read them all out to you. They're definitely worth reading. 
but central to the aims of the society is the idea that the faith informs not only the spiritual life of the artist, but also his intellectual life. In other words, the art that is informed by the faith is different from art that is not. And I'm not referring simply to the subject matter of a work of art. I'm not saying that a Catholic architect is more likely to design churches than one who is not, or that a Catholic painter is more likely to paint biblical scenes, for example. I am saying that his approach to his art in general will be different. Allow me to explain. Now let me begin by laying down some foundational principles. You probably have heard all this before being here at Steubenville, but they bear repeating. First principle, first principle, we are artists because God is an artist. We are artists because God is an artist. We are made in his image and likeness. Like him and unlike the animals, we have intellect and will. And like him, we can create things. In fact, we can create beautiful things, just as he created beautiful things. Our nature is like his nature, and therefore we act like him. This is by analogy, of course. We don't actually create things out of nothing the way he created the universe out of nothing but we do have the ability to transform things, so we create by analogy. We can take sounds and turn them into music. We can take clay and turn it into sculpture. We can take stone and turn it into architecture. We can take lines and colors and turn them into painting. There is a fly in the pigment, however, original sin. It is the second principle. Listen to these words by Father Joseph Katursky so we can flesh out the implications. He states in his lecture series, The Spiritual Life, while we never cease to be in the image of God, that's a structural feature about us, we have unfortunately frequently lost the likeness. It has been obscured by original sin and then the history of actual sins in our own persons and sometimes in the dis disabilities that are inflicted upon a whole culture. For this reason, the efforts to restore our likeness we who were made in God's image require the spiritual life." End quote. In other words, as we distance ourselves from God, we become less human. And in becoming less human, our art suffers. The three causes, just to repeat, are original sin, personal sin, and the culture. One of the central purposes of the Catholic Artist Society then is to help artists become better artists by helping them to overcome the effects of original sin, to become more virtuous, and to be a leaven in the culture. While we work on making ourselves more like God intended us to be, we also work on understanding the nature of the arts God created. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit about the nature of the art of architecture. Unfortunately, there is no architecture school here yet. You can do the thinking about music and drama. Uh, so you'll be able to transpose some of my comments. I did want to show you some images of what we've done at the Catholic Artist Society. This was uh, Vespers at the beautiful uh, Church of St. Vincent Ferrer on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. We had Father Michael Lang come and speak to us. 
Father Bruno Schott, Dominican preaching. And this is Father Katursky way in the distance there, uh, giving us a lecture after the first inaugural mass back in 2011. So we do get a good crowd. We, get, we have on our mailing list about 600 people. By all means, please join our mailing list and you can keep informed of our events. Okay, on to the philosophy segment. Now, I'm not a philosopher. I will have to get into philosophy a little bit in order to be able to explain why I do what I do. I'm sure you all do the same thing. If there are philosophers in the crowd, I am happy to receive fraternal correction on any of these points after the lecture. <laughs> all right, just as everything that God created has a unique nature, so each thing man creates has a nature. And I put create in quotation marks. So in other words, each art has its own unique nature. Drama has a nature, architecture has a nature, painting has a nature, and you can seek to understand it. And understanding is particularly important in this age of confusion, which calls into question even the very idea of nature. Everything seems to be up in the air. And if you want to think of art as the canary in the coal mine uh, for the culture, you can tell something is very seriously wrong with the, uh, with the underpinnings. Now, the nature of each of the arts is not a question of revelation. So you don't look to revelation to understand the nature of the art. God didn't tell us anything explicitly about what the nature of painting is or what the nature of architecture is. And in fact, we can just look at history and we can tell before Revelation, man was already understanding the nature of each of the arts. So for example, the ancient pagan philosophers explored the nature of drama, for example. Drama has certain natural rules, quote unquote. Um, you're, I'm sure, familiar with Aristotle's Poetics in which, for example, he says one rule of drama is that a story, I suppose speaking specifically of tragedy, must have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So that's like a natural law of tragedy. Um, one understands the nature of each of the arts by studying its history and by observing human nature. So how did Aristotle discover what the nature of tragedy was insofar as he explored it? He looked at the history of tragic uh, works of art and studied human nature. Studying human nature is important because in a way the nature of each art is a part of human nature it, him, itself. So God created us and it's in us to be doing these things. So we have to understand our nature. That way we can understand the nature of each one of the arts. Now what results when one creates a work of art skillfully? Beauty results. Beauty results when a thing is a perfect example of its nature. Okay, beauty results when a thing is a perfect example of its nature. God created the universe and his creation is beautiful because he did it so well. He's the perfect craftsman. Likewise, a skillful artist can create things 
which are beautiful. Now, what is beauty? Let's talk a little bit about beauty. This is especially important considering uh, the last two pontificates because both popes have discussed the path of beauty. If we can understand beauty, we can trace our way back. There's even, in fact, in, I believe, the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas's uh, theological compendium, a proof for the existence of God based on beauty. So this is, the, this is I suppose, the, the kernel of the path of beauty. If, if one can understand beauty, one understands the intelligence behind it. Now, how should we think about beauty? What is beauty? Staying in the line of St. Thomas Aquinas, I rely on him a lot, encouraged by John Paul II, also Benedict XVI, frankly, the whole uh, Catholic philosophical tradition since the Middle Ages, so it behooves all of you also to look into St. Thomas Aquinas. Beauty results when a, um, sorry, beauty is the glow of a thing that is exactly what it is supposed to be. A beautiful dog is one that looks like what a dog is supposed to look like. Not that. <laughs> First place in the ugly dog competition. So this is proof that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. As much as this dog was loved by his owner, he knew which competition to put him in. Um, a beautiful church is one which looks like what a church is supposed to look like. Joseph Pieper said, beauty is the glow of the true and the good that flows out of every ordered state of being. Let me repeat that and then we'll unpack it. Beauty is the glow of the true and the good that flows out of every ordered state of being. Okay, what is an ordered state of being? Ah, a beautiful dog. At least, the, at least here at Westminster they, th they thought so. St. Thomas said that beauty has three components, integrity, proportion, and clarity. Let's take each of those one by one. Integrity, what did he mean by integrity? Simple, a dog must look like a dog. It will not be beautiful if the dog looks like a cat, even though it's a great looking cat. If you see this beautiful cat, you hear it barking, that's not very beautiful. If it would meow, then it would be a beautiful thing. A house must look like a house. Likewise, a church must look like a church. Fairly simple. Okay, component number two, proportion. And proportion we can divide in two. Internal proportion and external proportion. What do we mean by internal proportion? A dog must have four legs, two eyes, a tail, most of them. The four legs must be of a certain length. You can't have the front leg half the length of the, uh, the, the right leg be half the length of the other leg. They all have to be in proportion to one another. The head can't be so large that it looks grotesque. It has to have a certain proportion in relation to the rest of the body. So that is how the dog is proportioned within itself. That's why I call it internal proportion. For a church, for example, a church must have an entry, 
must have a sanctuary, must have an altar, an altar, and all of these items have to have sound proportions relative to one another for it to be beautiful. Now, external proportion. A dog must act like a dog and not like a person or like a fly. So I call it external proportion because it's how the dog is proportioned relative to things outside of it. Um, a legislature, speaking of buildings now, must look more important than a middle-class house and less important than a cathedral. If you were to make your house, when you eventually build your houses, uh, look as important as a cathedral, you might upset the neighbors a little bit. They're going to think, look, who's, look who thinks he's a cathedral. Look who thinks he's the bishop. You're, it's, it's ostentatious. It would be out of proportion. Okay. Third component, clarity. Fairly simple. The thing speaks with a clear voice, and what it is saying should be evident. In other words, um, the thing cannot be lost in a fog so that when it is seen, it pleases. And this is another definition that uh, St. Thomas provides for beauty, a thing which that, which that which, when it is seen, pleases. If you can't see it, it's not going to please. So clarity is an important component. Okay, so keep those components in mind, integrity, proportion, and clarity. Now, let's look at the nature of architecture using that idea in some detail. The first thing I want to do is distinguish between mere building and architecture. What you're seeing uh, up on the screen is not architecture, just building. This is architecture. Now, what is the difference? The basic shape, let's just look at the facade of this church. This is San Giorgio Maggiore Church in Venice, designed by Andrea Palladio. It has a tall center section and then two lower side sections, just like, well, very close to this warehouse. Tall center section and lower side sections. So what makes the difference between architecture and building? It's all of this symbolic activity going on here on the facade. If I take all of this away, I'm going to end up with a mere building. What is this symbolic content? It's primarily a story about a structure. It's not necessarily the literal structure. It's just telling us, look, I've got four posts here in the front, four columns, and they support a beam, and that beam supports a roof. And then in a layer behind that, I've got a longer beam supported on shorter posts that are uh, flatter and more recessive. They're not so pronounced. Oops. And they also support uh, their own roof. That provides the structural framework within which is placed all kinds of iconography that relate directly to the purpose of this institution. So this is the Church of San Giorgio Maggiore. We're going to see Christ 
here depicted at the apex of the pediment. This triangular shape is called a pediment. To either side, you have angels. You have uh, St. George here, I believe, over this door, and then other saints and patrons accompanying on either side and on the ends of the gable. So symbolic content is what separates architecture from mere building. Now, let's go into greater detail about the natural laws of architecture in particular, now that we've got that established. Let's go through some basic rules that will sound maybe so common sense to you, they hardly bear repeating. Once you've got these in mind, though, explicitly, you'll see these laws violated time and again in uh, modern structures because they are specifically trying to deny the existence of these natural laws. So basic rule number one, symmetry suggests movement along an axis. So this little dash line here in the center suggests how you would move, and these squares su suggest objects. Those can be anything. Trees, columns, urns with plants in them, statues, uh, Knights of Columbus holding their swords, anything. Okay, here's the Avenue of the Sphinxes leading to a uh, temple, Temple of Karnak in Egypt. So the ancient pagans were well aware of this uh, quite simple fact. This was a processional route, so in order to give the processional route uh, some framing uh, worthy of it, they made it, uh, they framed it in this monumental manner. You've got the Via della Conciliazione in Rome, and this road was built after Mussolini and the Vatican came to uh, uh, an agreement in the 1940s. So this joining of Rome with the Vatican is symbolic, and the Via suggests movement back and forth along that axis. And then you have the very exalted axis of movement through a church. So this is the Basilica of St. Mark in Venice. Uh, the church is symmetrical, and the movement through the church is actually symbolic of one's movement through life, from birth and baptism, through increase in virtue, through the help of the sacraments. Finally, you reach uh, death and you hope heaven, which is symbolized by the sanctuary at the end. Okay, rule number two. Center is important, edge is not important. So if you walk into a room, I've got a door here on one end, and I've got some kind of an object located directly opposite that door on that uh, central axis of movement. This is where you put your important piece. Let's say it's a painting. You wouldn't put your most prized painting over here. This is going to be less important a spot than this spot over here. So what are some examples of that? Here we are in China in the Forbidden City. This is a gate that eventually leads uh, to the Temple of Heavenly Tranquility 
this gate here on center is more important than these lesser important gates because it occupies center. Same thing with the bridges. The central bridge is more important than the bridges that are on edge. The purpose of having these uh, distinguished is to denote hierarchy. And here we have it in a church. This is the church of San Clemente in Rome. So I've got my central axis here that leads to uh, the most important objects in the church. Number one, the altar, which is right underneath this ciborium. And then behind the altar, I've got the seat of the bishop. The things that are on edge are, for example, the ambos. And to either side of the bishop in this semicircular form here in the apse, you've got his attendants, which occupy a hierarchically lesser position. So important things on center, less important things on edge. Pretty simple, right? All of these rules are very simple. They're also very easily forgotten. They're also learned at a very early age. So this young lady is quite upset to be on edge. <laughs> this guy is very happy to be on center. Okay, physical relationships are analogous to the real relationships. So if I have a room, four walls, and four paintings on the center of each of the walls, there would be, quote unquote, a conversation going on among those paintings. It would be meaningful in some way, presumably. And here, the way these objects are arranged, it's almost as if you have a father-son relationship. More important object in the center, and then symmetrically disposed to either side, lesser um, items, whatever they might be, all related to one another, but hierarchical. Okay, so how does that look? This is a room in the Frick Museum, formerly the mansion of Henry Clay Frick on Fifth Avenue in New York. On center, you have a painting by El Greco of St. Jerome. Uh, to St. Jerome's right, you have St. Thomas More. And to St. Jerome's left, you have Cromwell. So wasn't Mr. Frick clever? St. Jerome seems to represent the received tradition. And these two were battling it out over their understanding of that received tradition, particularly the biblical tradition for which St. Jerome was responsible. Here you have the University of Virginia. Uh, everything is organized around this central lawn, which originally was quite open to a pasture. And right on center is the library. So this was designed by Thomas Jefferson for whom knowledge was God or reason was God. Um, this is modeled on the Pantheon in Rome, which was the temple to all the gods. So for Jefferson, an enlightenment figure, the library is now the Pantheon. Symmetrically disposed to either side and second in order in hierarchical importance are the houses of faculty members. Professor Doherty uh, laughs at my use of the term second in order of importance. 
Um, and then in between are uh, the residences for the students. Okay, so the architecture describes the actual relationships going on there at the university. Knowledge is the most important thing. Everything revolves around knowledge. Then come the teachers, then come the students. Here we have a painting by Correggio in the Cathedral of Parma. We have Christ receiving the soul of St. John, who is here upside down in this photo, and uh, surrounded by the apostles. The circle naturally symbolizes heaven. The dome, in fact, is really what symbolizes heaven as it imitates the dome of the sky. We'll get into that a little bit later. Supporting the dome of heaven are the four evangelists. Okay, so this is like a little catechism here. Christ, four evangelists occupying supporting peripheral positions, and then surrounding Christ are the apostles. And here in uh, New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral seems to be challenged by Atlas, very confrontational. Some would argue that the reason that sculpture was placed there was to show the cooperation between industry and religion, considering the fact that central to the composition of Rockefeller Center is a bas-relief sculpture of Prometheus. I'm not so sure that cooperation is what they had in mind here. Be that as, as, may, as it may, we know that there's some kind of a conversation going on just because of the direct physical relationship. Okay, next rule. Thresholds mark passage from one world to another. Each room is like its own world. And you pass from one world to another through a threshold and in the most important thresholds, those thresholds will speak specifically about what lies beyond. Here we have, for example, a very important threshold, the Arch of Constantine. Why did the emperors build triumphal arches? It was to show that they had taken the Roman people across a threshold to a new world of peace, prosperity, what have you. And the iconography on the arch speaks specifically about what exactly Constantine did to achieve that new world. This is the very beautiful Santa Maria della Salute in Venice. And its front door is a triumphal arch again. The threshold tells us explicitly what's happening if we, when we cross it. What is the world that lies beyond? It's uh, arrayed with saints and angels. And because of the scale and articulation of the arch, we know it is a very important threshold for the city of Venice. Santa Maria della Salute, Our Lady of Health, was built by the Venetians in thanksgiving for 
prayers answered during a plague. The doge prayed, if, you release, if we are released from the, from the plague, we will build a temple to the Virgin, and it happened, this is the temple. Okay, that, that story is told on that threshold. I couldn't let an architectural lecture go by without an image from Downton Abbey. <laughs> Here is the threshold that takes us to Lord Grantham world. It's actually the Earl of Carnarvon, but for the purposes of Downton Abbey, we'll call it Lord Grantham's world. And it is articulated with his coat of arms and is, is a, of a suitable monumentality proportionate to his station in English society when it was built. And sometimes we cross thresholds and it is a surprise what we find on the other side. Okay, another rule. The ideal diagram can be transformed to suit circumstance. <clears throat> so this diagram on the left, let's take it as the ideal. We wish we could have a, an axis take us through a vestibule into a monumental room beyond with some kind of a special object on the end. But because we have an unusual site, we're not able to do that. So we have to transform the diagram and in such a way that allows the original idea to be recoverable. So let's imagine that instead of a very long site, we had this odd L-shaped site. We turn the corner using this device of these uh, two objects, whatever they might happen to be. They could be columns, they could be sculptures, they could be anything. But their placement suggests a change in the path but continuity at the same time. So one moves through the plan and one is able to understand the diagram. One can recover it. Here is an excellent example of the diagram having to be transformed to suit circumstance. This is the cathedral in Vigevano in Italy and you'll notice that there are four doors here. There is no door on center in this facade. So what is happening? Well, they wanted to create a perfect termination to this square, this plaza. So they wanted the facade to go from end to end. But the church behind is actually only as wide as these three doors here. This door just leads to another street. So to get into the church, you would actually go through this door here. Let's have a look at the plan. So you can see here the square and that arced end goes from side to side and this door just leads to another street this door that was just off-center in that facade takes you into the center of the nave and up <clears throat> to the sanctuary. Here's another even more sophisticated example. This is 
<clears throat> in Place Vendôme in Paris, the French really became masters of these plan manipulations. And we study them today in architecture school. I want to look at a residence, what the French call a hotel, but they don't mean a hotel in the sense that we mean hotel. They mean a place where somebody important lives, right behind this corner here of the plaza. Here is a plan view of the plaza, and I'm referring to this residence here. Somehow the architect had to get you smoothly from this entrance that's on a diagonal back to this garden back here. The property is a very odd shape. So how does he do that? Let's have a look at the plan. This is it overlaid onto the site photograph. So one enters into a circular vestibule. From there one moves into an open court and one suddenly finds the axis shifted. Let's zoom in a little bit. So I'm only looking at this residence over here. This one is a separate residence. Actually, I believe this piece of property was owned by the son-in-law of this fellow. And this fellow actually had the architect design a terrace that overlooked this guy's courtyard. Very protective of his daughter, apparently. One enters from the plaza into this circular uh, vestibule and then one finds oneself on the edge of an apse that is symmetrical with a, another threshold that would take us out to a service court where they kept the horses and carriages. As one recovers the center, which one naturally tends to do looking for the symmetry, the stair that takes us into the residence is on one end and on the other end a porch Recentering happens again. One can go to a stair on one side or to a threshold on the other, which takes us into an antechamber. And from there, one has access to a series of rooms or to the garden from which one can view a facade symmetrically commanding that garden. So it's all a very sophisticated play of movement from center to edge, recovery of center, edge again, recovery of center again, and this is how uh, the graceful transitions occur. Okay, So all the while you can recover the ideal diagram. The ideal diagram is I'm taking you from the plaza out to my garden. I want to show you how large my property is and the garden is a beautiful thing. I want to connect uh, the beautiful rooms, the most monumental and stately rooms. Okay, another principle, life, the principle of life. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is the most important icon that one finds repeated in architectural production is life itself. Here we have a temple, an Egyptian temple, and the tops of each of these columns has a kind of a bloom. Uh, 
represent uh, blooms from various plants that had symbolic meaning for the Egyptians. The palm, whoop, I keep doing that. The palm, the lotus, and the work seems to be done effortlessly. Keep that in mind, I'm going to come back to that idea. But the basic idea is one takes a dead post and one breathes life into it. One recalls the passage from Genesis, and the Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth and breathed into his face the breath of life and man became a living soul. Okay, the architect wants to do exactly the same thing. It is natural for us to take dead structure and try to breathe life into it insofar as that is possible. Okay? So, this is a detail from the Parthenon in Athens, a, a reconstruction of the Parthenon. The Parthenon that you have seen has been stripped of its original painted decoration. So it doesn't look as lively as it would have back then. But the painting on the stone would have depicted all kinds of uh, leaves, palmettes. Uh, for example, where a common uh, leaf that was used, acanthus. The same basic idea as what the Egyptians were pursuing, which is to breathe life into the dead structure. At the top of the column, you have a bloom, which seems to support the whole thing effortlessly. Later on, as the West traditions developed, we started sculpting those, uh, the icon, the iconography of life. Here we have a capital from uh, the Middle Ages, an adaptation of a Corinthian capital, to be precise, uh, which would have, which here we have a, hi a highly stylized acanthus leaf and the heads of various uh, figures uh, interspersed. Okay, another principle, integrity. Buildings should look like what they are. Okay, remember that principle of beauty? This is a Benedictine monastery at Melk in Austria, one of the most beautiful in the world. And um, as you know, you can visit a Benedictine mon monastery um, anytime you like. It's in the rule of St. Benedict that all visitors are to be received as Christ. So you can just show up and uh, you should be able to get the royal tour. Now I was speaking on one occasion with a Benedictine abbot. He invited me to his monastery uh, to come visit at any time, but he said, if you're gonna come and visit, uh, try to call ahead. And I said, well, uh, thank you, Father. That's very kind of you, but um, since it's in the rule, aren't you prepared to receive all visitors as Christ? So I should just be able to show up. And he said, well, those who just show up are received as Christ. Those who call ahead, even better. <laughs> so if you can find the number in the book, call ahead. Okay, this is a town hall in a small town in 
uh, Connecticut, I believe. No, I'm sorry, it's in New Jersey. It looks like a town hall, it's very typical. This is a larger town hall. This is in Brooklyn. These are buildings that look like what they are. Town hall looks like a town hall. It can't be confused with something else. There's no mixed message. This is a house, a very classic American house. This is another kind of house, but nevertheless, unmistakable townhouse in Georgetown. Okay, this is all kind of uh, obvious. Okay, now how do we put all of these together? Imagine for a moment a very beautiful city that you have visited, Venice, Rome, London, Prague, Budapest, any one of these very beautiful cities uh, that have a large uh, tourist draw, and arrange all of their buildings in a line from most important at one end to least important at the other end. Okay? So you'll have a long line of buildings. They'll all look like they belong to one family. Venetian buildings look like Venetian buildings. Buildings from Prague look like they uh, belong in the Czech Republic. English buildings look like English buildings. But they're all different. Um, most important at one end, least important at another. And then let's take samples from that line of building. Let's take five samples just to make our lives easier. You do that and you'll come up with a diagram that looks something like this. This is related to the principle of beauty I was calling earlier external proportion. How are these buildings all related to one another? Let's get specific about what the qualities are that make the distinctions. So first and foremost, is amount of iconography. So at the monumental end of your scale, shall we call it, or spectrum, you've got a maximum amount of iconography. So if you go to the most important church in Rome, Basilica of St. Peter's, St. John Lateran, you've got a lot of iconography there. Go to the low end of the spectrum, which would just be, let's say, a temporary market building or something, you would have zero iconography. And then you have a whole spectrum in between. A house would have, depending on the class of the person, fairly minimal iconography, perhaps a cornice, a nice surround on the door that had a certain monumental presence, but not too ostentatious. The palace would be grander in scale, more iconography, but would not want to upstage the cathedral. Okay, you get the idea. So, amount of iconography, scale, so at the monumental end of your scale, the scale is very grand. At the rustic end of the scale, the vernacular end of the scale, the scale is very small. Now what I mean by scale is different from size. It's not the size of the building. It's the scale of the architectural elements. So remember that facade, San Giorgio Maggiore, I was comparing to the humble warehouse 
that symbolic structural detailing that was overlaid onto what would have been a bare structure can be done at a small scale or at a very monumental scale. That is what gets proportioned to the status of the institution. So if I were to compare, for example, the columns at St. Peter's to uh, the columns of a, pa a palace in Piazza Navona, I would find the columns in uh, the palace of Piazza Navona would be smaller. In fact, let's make this more interesting. Here's Piazza Navona. If I compare the columns on this palace here to the columns of the church, St. Agnes, the columns and St. Agnes are grander in scale even though the building itself is smaller than the palace. Okay, so I just wanted you to have clear the distinction between size and scale. Okay, going back here, you'll find on the monumental scale the plan, the elevations are more formal and at the vernacular end of the scale, the rustic end of the scale, it's very informal purely practical. The barn at the low end of the scale just has to serve a very practical purpose. At the end of the scale where you're talking about a cathedral or a palace, it's not about practicality anymore. It's about communicating the status, the message, decorum. And practicality can take a second place, even though it has to be served as well. That is not what is important. Okay, at the monumental end of the scale, you've got regional conventions. At the vernacular end of the scale, you've got local conventions. And the list goes on. You've got more architecture, sculpture, and painting on the monumental side, nothing on the vernacular side. Um, execution, the actual craftsmanship that had to go into monumental construction is difficult, whereas at the vernacular end, the construction is simple. Um, one more I'll, I'll pass along to you as this will be uh, useful to you. Materials. You put your expensive rare marbles in your very important cathedral. You don't put your expensive rare marbles in uh, a, uh, a local warehouse on the edge of town. That's where you put your cheap materials. That's where you put your corrugated metal. You don't put the corrugated metal in the cathedral. So you can take materials and arrange them hierarchically as well. From porphyry, which is practically priceless, a priceless uh, granite on one end, to plastic on the other end. Okay, so Piazza Navona almost um, describes the full scale in Rome, or at least a good chunk of it. You've got the church at the high end, the palace underneath the church, and then at the bottom here, or near the bottom, you would have uh, the relatively humble residential structures that would just be detailed with simple cornices and window surrounds and things. At the lowest end would just be the temporary market stalls or temporary uh, construction work that has to go up that has zero iconography. But this church is careful not to upscale St. Peter's, St. John Lateran, or the other important churches around the city. Fairly simple principle, important sites for important buildings. So if you're designing a city from scratch, you save uh, the most important piece of land, the high ground, uh, for your 
uh, basilica, your legislature, however the town is going to be constituted, your important pieces go on the important sites in the town. Uh, lesser sites get lesser institutions. This is um, the uh, hospital Hotel des Invalides in Paris with the church on the center. And if you can get all of that going, you get a beautiful city like this one. It's full of meaning is recoverable. One, one can walk through Salamanca, this is Salamanca, Spain, and understand what is of value to the people who live there. So in theory, a Martian could come to Salamanca, walk around, and he will know what is of value to the Spaniards who live there. These people value what uh, the church stands for. That is evidently the most important building. Next would be the university. Sorry, university. Um, it gets very important buildings that have uh, high status uh, relative to other lesser, lesser institutions, and then after that you have residential structures, etc. But let's say the constitution of the city, the values of the people are in stone. Now, let's talk about the modern rebellion. Can anybody identify what kind of a building this is? This is a church. But you didn't know that until I told you. Okay, so it is lacking the principle of integrity. So it's very difficult to say this is a beautiful building. That is one of the reasons why. What is it? No clarity. What is it? What is it? Presbyterian. <laughs> Whoo, dodge that one. This is the Royal Ontario Museum, and they've just had a facelift. <laughs> this is um, an extension by uh, Daniel Liebeskind. If that part were there on its own, it would also be lacking the principle of integrity. Of course, we're also lacking here the principle of proportion. It is not relating externally to the existing structure. Needless to say, it's not relating to uh, the rest of the city. It's impossible to place that building. That building is a pure expression of the artist's ego. This slide makes me laugh every time I see it. <laughs> this is Prague. Look at the poor city of Prague behind here. Now, thank God this was not executed. The architect died. <laughs> Stay calm. Um, this was going to be the National Library of the Czech Republic. It is not a scene from the blob. <laughs> the residents are not in danger physically, at least. But wow. So this building fails on pretty much every single level imaginable, at least from a traditional point of view. It's hard to imagine that it could actually be more rebellious. I mean, what, what is next? Okay, now this is a fairly important church in the sense that it is a 
a monument constantly referred to uh, by architects of a certain stripe. It's uh, Ronchamp um, in France, uh, Notre Dame du Haut, a Dominican church. Notice the lack of symmetry. So there is no particular movement suggested. It's very unclear. If I were, if I did not have a cross here, fairly lame cross, and an altar, fairly lame altar, I would not know that this was a church. So it's lacking the principle of integrity. Proportion is impossible because there's no elements here common to uh, buildings outside, so one can't scale it. You can't calibrate it. One can't know if one is being too ostentatious or not monumental enough. This, believe it or not, is also a church. This was Peter Eisenman's competition entry for the Church of the Millennium in Rome. I think these are pews, and I think the Blessed Sacrament was supposed to be over here. So maybe no further comment. I think you got the idea about the rebellion. Now, notice I'm not talking about style. So you often hear, in defense of modernist architecture, quote, the church has never adopted a style as her own. And that is true. The church has, throughout history, adopted what was around it. So the first churches were late Roman classical churches, the ones Constantine built. Who knows what modifications were made to the homes of the early Christians before Constantine legalized Christianity. We don't have any archeological evidence for that. I would not be surprised if some of the wealthier uh, converts uh, or even, um, let's say, third century, somebody was raised in the faith, the faith is still illegal, but they make a modification to the house. They've got a chapel there. Who knows what could have been done with some of these wealthy patrons that could have been some uh, spectacular chapels, for all we know. We don't have any archaeological evidence to say. There certainly is not archaeological evidence to suggest that they just gathered around their dining room table. That is also guesswork. We don't have that. Um, so getting back to the point, first churches were late Roman style, then Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, uh, neoclassical after that. Churches just um, wanted to employ, or the church wanted to employ artists who were practicing and engaged with the world and uh, uh, engaged in the latest fashions so that the church would be communicating with the people at that time and produce um, objects of cultural significance. It's a mistake to say modernism is just another style like those previous styles. Because now we're getting into substance. So don't confuse style and substance. When we're talking about an absence of integrity, absence of proportion, um, uh, internal uh, hierarchy, um, the plan laws, 
are not being, are specifically being violated, for example, we've got another problem on our hands. Now, we've also got a problem with the way we design our cities. It's not just our buildings that are a problem. What has taken hold is a materialist view of human nature. This idea has its roots in the Enlightenment, I would argue. Philosophers, correct me if I'm wrong. But since, let's say, the 17th century, what has been fermenting and building is the idea that the only thing we can know is how to serve man materially. So now we are designing our cities that way. What does it mean for our cities? We separate them out into function, functional zones. While our traditional cities were a rich tapestry that described what we believed, now our city is a bunch of places, a bunch of areas connected by highways Uh, to serve man's material needs. So this is the part of the town where we eat and sleep. This is the part of the town where we shop for clothes. This is the part of the town where we do our groceries. And to get from this house to the grocery store, I can't walk 20 feet to get there. I have to get into my car and drive to the other zone. I have to take a machine to get there. The machine is a very important icon in our modern culture. I would even argue that the reason we see so much machine iconography in buildings today is because we have convinced ourselves that the, the creation of a machine is analogous to the creation of life. And at the same time, we've convinced ourselves ourselves that l a living thing is actually just a very complicated machine. So we don't need God anymore. We just need the singularity and the primordial soup. And we are just machines. We are the creators of machines. We are the masters. And that is why the iconography of life has been replaced by the iconography of the machine. Um, just a couple of words about the Enlightenment and how we got here. For those of you who are interested, I highly recommend the book by Etienne Gilson called The Unity of Philosophical Experience. It's a compilation of a series of lectures Etienne Gilson, a Thomist, gave it at Harvard University in the 1940s, in which he lays out with a very broad brush the history of philosophy, which he basically divides in two. From antiquity to about the time of the Enlightenment, philosophers thought about things, objective things and their nature and tried to understand them. So the goal was to get the intellect to conform 
with the reality it found outside of it. After the Enlightenment, I say after as if there was a hard line, but there was no hard line. It was a slow setting of the sun. The object of interest became our thoughts. We no longer had to conform our intellects to objects. We only had to work out the implications of a totally internally coherent universe that we had inside of our heads. And basically, the end result of that is nihilism. So we started out thinking reason can solve everything. We don't need to study history. We don't need to look at objects. All I need is pure reason to dispel mystery. And the end result is nothing has any meaning and there is no possibility of knowing anything. Nihilism. So this is where our intellectual culture has ended up and our art is telling us that. The ugliness of our art is telling us that. That we have gone down a dead end. Um, just to give you something to take away with that idea, everybody knows Descartes' famous formulation, I think, therefore I am. That is actually an inversion of the traditional formulation, if there had been one. I am, therefore I think. Now why did they say, why would they have said, I am, therefore I think? Do the following thought experiment. Imagine you are born and you have no sense perception whatsoever. You can't taste, smell, see, hear, or touch. Nothing. You would not know you existed. All right? So all knowledge begins in the perception. So we have to sense the outside world. And that is even how we know who we are. That is even how we know we exist. Okay? Unity of Philosophical Experience by Etienne Gilson. I highly recommend it. So if we can work out that philosophical problem, and I believe the faith offers us this advantage, we, we have already solved the problem. We just have to see that it filters out through the culture. This is one of the goals of uh, the Catholic Artist Society. Now, in many respects, things look bleak out there, but if art is really the canary in the coal mine, I am here to say we are miles ahead of where we were in the 60s and 70s. The recovery has already begun. Why it's happening, I have absolutely no idea. But it is happening. Um, you have institutions such as University of Notre Dame, even Yale University, um, teaching traditional architecture, the University of Miami, um, and perhaps a most promising institution, the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art in New York City. Um, 
and other smaller organizations around the world that are trying to recover the arts as they used to be taught. And I don't think it's only happening in architecture. I know for a fact it's also happening in painting and sculpture. They're doing that at the Institute of Classical Ar Art and Architecture in New York City. So this is cause for hope, serious cause for hope. I'm not just being uh, a Pollyanna here. There's um, serious reason to think somehow something is happening. Uh, the philosophy doesn't seem to be coming along with it, at least not in those pockets. It's almost as if we are being uh, forced out of our current position by the ugliness of the environment that we've uh, created. So eventually our uh, philosophy is going to conform with it. We're going to understand that the philosophy and the beautiful artwork have to be coherent with one another. Zoning laws are also changing so that um, it is now becoming slowly but surely legal again to build beautiful cities such as this one. This is Segovia in Spain. So there is much work still to be done. There, is a great re there are great reasons for hope. Thanks to schools like Franciscan University of Steubenville, a secure foundation is under construction. Once again, we will be able to produce works of art worthy of presentation to God. Here we have uh, Justinian on the left presenting the Hagia Sophia to the Virgin and Child and Constantine presenting the city of Constantinople. If we are going to make worthy gifts for the Virgin and Child, we must keep in mind our uh, nature, what we were created to do. Remember that you are made in God's image and likeness, and as such, we're made to make in his image and likeness. Thank you very much. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.